official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. Oh, the shield! You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. Oh, and now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. It's good night, Irene! Hello and welcome to K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of K1. I'm Michael Chevello, sizzling hot down under. It's summer in Melbourne, in Australia, and my word, is it hot? But meanwhile, way up north, my co-host Jonathan Schur in Tokyo is on the other end of the weather spectrum. G'day to you, Jonathan. Good afternoon, Michael. It is frigid here in Tokyo. I'm not sure exactly the the temperature, but uh, man, you can see your breath. In front of your nose, indoors. It's uh, going to hit, as I check the temperature here on my phone, today in Melbourne, it's going to hit 31 degrees. But uh, interestingly, this has been the coldest and wettest summer on record in Melbourne for a long, long time. Only over the last week have we had in excess of 30 degrees, uh, and it's been nice. I took my boys fishing. We went to the cricket, which is the thing you do during the summer here in Australia at the MCG. We went to the cricket last night and saw a great game and – you know, the Australian Open is now on, of course, here in Melbourne. So the sporting season has officially kicked off in the sporting capital of the world. Uh, but I know that it's uh, it's cold up there in Tokyo. And you know what, Jonathan, for the amount of times I've been to Tokyo over the years, and I've got to say it's probably in excess of 50 um, all these times commentating K1 over the years. I like the Tokyo winter. I enjoy it. I find it very fresh. It's not so wet. I just – I find the air – crisp i find it fresh i enjoy tokyo winter yeah i mean it is it tends to be fairly dry here in tokyo but overall japan gets a surprising amount of snowfall um i can remember one because it's surrounded by ocean we have we have a lot of rain here a lot of snowfall it doesn't seem to snow that much in tokyo for whatever reason but um i remember looking at the snowpack one year and just saying oh there's 300 centimeters of snow um in the mountains. And I, it didn't seem to be that much to me at the time, but then I gave it a, a good thought and it's like, that's 10 feet of snow. That's, the only uh, time I encountered snow in Japan was never in Tokyo. When I went to do a tour of Mount Fuji, I remember going to Mount Fuji and it was, it was snow covered and it was quite lovely. Uh, that said though, snow sucks. I hate snow. I would never want to live in snow. <laughs> I despise snow. I always tell people, you know, a lot of Australians, because we don't have a lot of snow here and because I lived in America for so long and every time I travel to the East Coast during winter to be snow laden in, in places like uh, Rhode Island and in New York, et cetera, and, and in Denver, of course, when I travel to Denver and blizzards would blow in and everyone in Australia is always like, oh, snow's so pretty. I wish we had snow. And I, no, you don't. Snow looks pretty, but it is hard work. I would not want to live in it. Who can be bothered, Jonathan, waking up every morning, having to wipe snow off your windshield, having to dig snow, shovel snow off your porch, off your driveway, off your front path? It's terrible. How can anyone like snow? Which is kind of why I think people in those really heavily snowed in places have a bit of a gallows humor when it comes to uh, dealing with the snow. It's kind of like this... uh, this resignation that they have about about dealing with the elements. But um, thankfully in Tokyo, we don't really have to deal with that more than a couple days of the year. So uh, now tell me we're when, good here. When we roll around to K1 Max on March 20 at the Yoyogi National Gymnasium Stadium, will there still be that fresh coldness or will we have moved into uh, springtime? It is possible, Michael, that we will have some snow left over 
you know, if we if we get lucky or unlucky, as the case may be, folks, you don't, don't like forget, snow. So I, I don't like snow. So hopefully, no snow by the time I get there for March twenty. Folks, do book your tickets. It is a national holiday in Japan on Wednesday, March twenty. It's going to be nuts. Come enjoy the festivities and enjoy seeing the reborn K1 Max March 20. Um, as I said a few weeks ago on the podcast, here in Australia, uh, Japan, specifically Tokyo, has become the number one tourist destination for people to visit over the last year, as opposed to Bali in Indonesia, which is the traditional hotspot for tourism out of Australia. So, uh, you know, book your ticket wherever you are around the world. Witness K1 Max March 20 in Tokyo at the Yoyogi National Stadium Gymnasium, which was the site where K1 was born. It was the womb. Can I say that? The womb from which K1 emerged back in April 30, 1993. The first ever K1 World Grand Prix was at the Yoyogi National Stadium Gymnasium. So we're going back there, Jonathan. We're reinvigorating good old Yoyogi. Well, it's um, it's kind of appropriate, I think, the the womb metaphor, because this is rebirth that we're talking about. So uh, it is being reborn indeed. By the way, you, you're always my go-to guy for, for Japanese. Does Yoyogi mean anything in English? Can you translate Yoyogi or is it someone's name? Is it is it Yoyogi Bear? What is it? Oh, no. Here we go again. I got to give an answer on the spot about Japan. There's something I don't really know anything about. But let's just stay cool and try to answer as best we can. Here we go. Let's uh, look it up on the internet. It says that there are going to be many trees here from generation to generation. Okay. Let's give that answer. I just think it, it's its saying that there are a lot of trees there. No, wait, that, that's not what I meant to say. The kanji is a bit um, its confusing to me. It's something like a tree standing in for a tree. I, I, I don't know. I can't quite figure it out. But, a tree standing uh, in so for another tree. I don't know if that tree, answers your question. So, so it's the understudy tree. It's the in understudy tree. In case the first tree, yeah, tree falls, a, the understudy tree is ready to take its place. Uh, good enough? The last minute replacement. <laughs> Jonathan, I'm so excited to delve into this episode because we've got a good one, folks. We are going to take the DeLorean back in time to the first ever back-to-back wins in the K1 World Grand Prix, 94 and 95, by Peter Ertz. And then, later on, an exclusive interview with the man who was pulling the strings behind Peter Ertz back in those days, the supreme trainer, the legend himself, the pioneer of Dutch Muay Thai, Tom Harrink will be our special guest on this show. Jonathan, I'm excited. I know you're excited. Is it time to fire up the flex capacitor? You know it, which means it's time for K1 Rewind. This week, we go back to 1994 and 1995 when Peter Ertz became the first person to win consecutive K1 World Grand Prix titles a feat that would be repeated by Ernesto Hoost in 1999 and 2000, by Remy Bonjaski in 2003 and 2004, and Semi Schult in 2005 and 2006. And, of course, Semi would also win for a third consecutive time in 2007. So coming into the 1994 Grand Prix, Peter Ritz was considered one of the top three heavyweights on the planet. He came in on a three-fight winning streak, including winning the WMTA World Heavyweight Championship against America's Dino Holmesy, who he knocked out in Tokyo with a head kick in 96 seconds. And then there was a title defense against the sadly named Marcus Fuckner of Germany. Yes, Marcus Fuckner of Germany. Ertz's only loss in the last two years had been against Ernesto Hust, 
and that, of course, was in the 1993 Grand Prix. So in the quarterfinals in 94, Ertz faces fellow Dutchman Rob Van Esdonk. Van Esdonk is lean, but my God, this guy's tall. He's listed officially as six foot six, but I believe he was taller, more like six foot eight. He towers over Peter Ertz, and Ertz is around six foot five himself. Van Esdonk drops Ertz with a hook in the first round. The referee puts a count on Ertz, but Ertz is okay. He's just in a little more shock than anything that Van Esdonk actually dropped him. But the knockdown really fires up Peter. He takes off the shackles and he goes nuts on Van Esdonk. And what I really like about this young Peter Ertz is his transition from punching into the tie clinch and his use of the knees. Peter's knees back then and the way that he could use them in the tie clinch uh, for a lot more time than what we saw later on when the K1 rule set was changed that you could only clinch knee and release. And for much of that time, it was a single hand clinch knee release. Back then, you could hold on to the tie clinch a little longer. And Peter Ertz was the, the master of this. In the second round, Ertz assaults Van Esdonk. He rains down hell on him with kicks, uh, spinning back fists, leg kicks, the clinch, the knees, the high kicks. Van Esdonk is blown out. He's constantly backpedaling, and that spells disaster against a beast like Peter Ertz. There's a point at about 45 seconds left in the round where Van Esdonk drops Ertz with a lovely counter uppercut, but the referee doesn't pay it a knockdown. If you get the chance to watch this video, have a look and let me know if you think it should have been a knockdown for Van Esdonk, this lovely uppercut where Van Esdonk is backed against the ropes and Ertz comes in fast on him and Van Esdonk actually drops him. We move into the third round and at 1 minute 10 seconds, Van Esdonk backpedals to the ropes and Ertz delivers one of the all-time great highlight reel knockouts in kickboxing history. He winds the right round kick and wraps his shin around Van Esdonk's neck. Van Esdonk is out on his feet. And when he falls, it's like seeing a detonated skyscraper. He hits the canvas hard. And it's almost comical the way Van Esdonk goes down. It's truly one of the great K1 knockouts. So Peter Ertz moves through to the semifinals. There he knocks out America's Patrick Smith in 63 seconds with an overhand right. So Peter moves through to the final, and here he takes on his arch rival, Masaki Satake. They fought at the 1992 Karate World Cup. It ended in a draw. This time, they go the distance, and Ertz wins by decision to be crowned the K1 World Grand Prix champion and take his record to a superb 36-5-1. So... Peter Ertz returns in 1995 to the Grand Prix. Now, if the 1994 Grand Prix lineup was considered somewhat average, the 1995 A1 Grand Prix lineup is savage. Ertz comes in on a 12-fight winning streak and is now generally considered the best heavyweight on the planet bar none. He beats Atokawa in the quarterfinals by first-round knockout. He decisions his arch-rival, Ernesto Hoost, in the semifinals by an easy extra round. And in the final, he knocks out Jerome Labana in 97 seconds with a body shot to win the tournament. Ertz is K1's first ever back-to-back -back winner. He's only 24 years old. He truly is 
the strongest man on the planet. And on that night, the legend of Mr. K1 was born because that's what Peter went on to be known as. That title given by fans, not to anyone else, not to Hoost, not to Hug, not to Schultz or Bonjaski or Sikatik, but given only and solely to Peter Ertz. He is Mr. K1. It wasn't only Ertz's wins that won over fans. It was the way that he won. Peter represented a new breed of heavyweight, a breed hell-bent on not just beating opponents, but destroying them. Peter would swamp opponents. He would drown them with overwhelming volume and savage power, kicks, punches, knees, spinning back fists. He did it all, and he just kept coming and coming and swarming and smothering and suffocating until you went down or he went down. And usually, you went down. And usually, when you went down, especially from those knees out of the tie clinch, or from those wicked roundhouse kicks thrown off both legs, where there's a switch-up roundhouse off the left or a traditional roundhouse off the rear leg right, you were gone. You were astral traveling. You were on another dimension. I mean, Peter Ertz savagely knocked out people back then. And uh, that's how he became the first ever two-time K1 World Grand Prix champion. Jonathan, there was no one quite like Peter Ertz in the mid-1990s. As I said, at 24 years old, on a he came into that 95 Grand Prix on a 12-fight winning streak. He was a relentless savage with Tom Harrink in his corner who was just slicing and filleting everybody in the world. Each one of the gyms has its, its real strengths, and um, you get the sense of Tom Harrink's Jim, it was like really his leadership, but also the teammates that Ertz had to practice with. They were really high level, weren't they? You'll hear later on when we speak to Tom about some of the training partners they had back then. But his main training partner was the guy that had won the K1 Grand Prix the year before him in Branko Sikatik. You could not ask for a greater sparring partner than Branko because back then, Branko was a, a mean son of a bitch. You know, Branko was one of the most ferocious, if not the most ferocious puncher on the planet back then. So for Peter to be doing the hard rounds with Branko and and also the hard yards in the gym with Tom. And again, you'll hear it in the interview with Tom on this week's episode. And of course, next week when we replay the full interview with Tom Harrink, you'll hear about just how hard the training was in Harrink's Chukariki gym back then and how Tom Harrink gave, you know, didn't offer an inch to anyone, no matter what their name was. There's a great story he tells about Jerome Labana training with him and his attitude towards Jerome Labana when Labana came in late and his attitude towards Bada Hari when Bada Hari was training with him as a youngster. You're going to hear all that. And it's part and parcel of what made these amazing Dutch fighters back in the day. Because Jonathan, you speak to any of these Dutch guys and even today, uh, this, the sparring they do in Holland during the week, four or five times every day of the week while they're sparring is as hard as a real fight. They don't hold back. They're not wearing all the padding. When they spar in Holland, they are going full bore 100%. And that is what has helped them over the years make them such killers inside the ring. There's no relent in their sparring. It kind of boggles the mind. I, I wonder how they recover from that. It must be so um, 
hard at first, but you know that damage uh, they get, they build up a resistance to it or something. What's going to be interesting also in a few weeks' time, we are going to have an interview with Paul Slowinski. Keep an eye on that one, folks, because Paul Slowinski did go over and train with Ernesto Hust, and he won the European Championship, the European Grand Prix, training with Ernesto. And Paul also has some amazing insights into the hardness of the training with Ernesto at that gym that he endured every day. But that is the story of Peter Ertz becoming the first ever back-to-back winner of the K1 World Grand Prix and really raising the bar for champions that would come in the future and there would be some brilliant ones. And that's a wrap for this episode of K1 Rewind. Our superstar interview this week on K1 Battlecast, we go all the way to Holland where I am joined by the legend himself, the father of Dutch Muay Thai, the man who trained so many great Muay Thai and kickboxing champions over the year, Mr. Tom Harring. Right now, we head over to the Netherlands, where we are joined by one of the greatest kickboxing trainers of all time, a man whose name is synonymous with K1 history, the one and only, the godfather of Dutch Muay Thai himself, Tom Herring. Tom, great to see you, my friend. Very good. I'm happy to speak with you now after a long time. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's been a long time since we've spoken to each other. Let's take a trip down memory lane. And Tom, I want to go back to 1993 and how you first heard about this amazing tournament called K1 that invited all the best heavyweights from around the world to compete in Japan. What were your thoughts when you first heard about K1 and your fighters, Branko and Peter Ertz, were invited to the first K1. Yeah, you know what happened when uh, Mr. Ishii called me for, uh, or his secretary, to ask me to come uh, competition in Japan. I have to go with one fighter, and that was Peter Arts. And, of course, Peter was very good, the, the champion, and we trained hard for that. And then about uh, 10 days before the fight, Mr. Ishii called me again. He said, Tom, do you have another heavyweight? Because one of the fighters was sick and he pulled out. So I said, yes, I have a fighter. And that was Branko Sikatic, already 38 years old, but he was training in my gym with Peter and my other fighters. So I said, yes, I have one. The name from Croatian guy is Branko Sikatic. He said, oh, that's great. So you can come and invite you with Peter Arts and Branko Sikatic. So Branko was only the last 10 days knowing that he can fight there. I do wonder, given that information, if Branko was the replacement fighter for Stan the Man Longanides, because Stan the Man Longanides was invited to the tournament and actually broke his arm and couldn't compete at the last moment. So I do wonder if Branko got the call up because of Stan the Man Longanidi's injury. Oh, that was it. Yeah, I didn't know who, who was the fighter who was going out, but uh, Stan the Man is a fantastic fighter and uh, we know him. He was in also in Japan many times and Branko fought with him in wow. Australia. I, I was going to say, Tom, this is interesting because I, I – I would have said at the time in 1993, Branko Sikitik was the bigger name worldwide than Peter Ertz. I remember when Branko came to Australia to fight Stan the Man, I remember a young Peter Ertz being in the corner of Branko Sikitik as part of the corner crew. So for us in Australia and in a lot of the other parts of the world, 
We all knew Branko as the guy who'd fought Stan, the guy who'd fought Dennis Alexio in a controversial match against Alexio. We knew Branko. We didn't really know Peter Ertz as much, but I know Peter was a big deal in, in, in Holland at the time. Yeah, because Peter was a very young boy at that time. He was only 18 years, and Branko was 20 years older than him. But, of course, in the in our dojo, they sparring a lot together, so there was very good to get a high level because that. Would you say that going into that first tournament in 1993, uh, did you consider Peter as a favourite and did you consider Branko as a favourite? No, I see more, I think, was Peter Ars was the, the favourite man to get uh, the winner of this tournament because he was very hungry, he was young. But of course, Branko had a lot of experience and Branko was unbelievable strong with his punch. He knocked out every in every fight in Europe. He knocked out all the, the opponents of him. But it was a surprise that, of course, he kept the title there and he won the tournament in 1993 the first time. You know, Tom, you've seen every K1 Grand Prix win in history. You've analyzed them. Uh, many of them you coached yourself. Branko's win still flies under the radar for a lot of fans, maybe because it was the first time. But as you said, it was one of the most destructive wins in the history of K1 in that Branko stopped everybody in a very tough tournament and did it so effectively with highlight reel knockouts. His knockout in the final of Ernesto Hoost remains one of the greatest knockouts in K1 history. Yeah, uh, he did that two times with Ernesto Hoos. So after his farewell fight, he get a fight again with Hoos and he knocked him out again. And Hoos told me also, he said, I don't know, but this man, I can never beat him. He was very honestly, you know. And Branco was a sharp eye. He was looking very well. And sometimes Branco take a punch to give you the punch. But when you get the punch from him, you get KO. For sure. <laughs> very, very true. What what was your reaction and what was Peter's reaction after losing in the, the, the 93 Grand Prix so early and not making it through to the final? Uh, it was not so big deal, you know, because uh, Peter was a very young boy and I was thinking and I told my fighter, your time will come. And it was come because in 1994, 1995, he won the K1 again, Peter Art. So, you know, Let's talk about that because, as you said, Peter became the first ever back-to-back -back champion. He won it in 94 for the first time. He won it in 95 for the second time, both times very resounding wins. How was it a different Peter Ertz in 94 and 95 than the Peter Ertz who had fought in 93? What was different about Peter? Well, I think it was more the experience that he had more the fights. You know, of course, he was very nervous. He was a very young boy when he fought in 1993. And he had a lot of respect, like for Branco. It was more like a father for him, you know. They, they uh, spar together, they fight together. But of course, he looked very up to Branco. So it was not bad that Branco win that because Branco 38 years. And I know the time will come for Peter. And we prove it because after that, Peter was the man and Branko come a little bit back. So that was no problem, you know. I do want to say to fans that if you look at the record of Peter Ertz and uh, go back to 1993, his loss against Ernesto Hoost, after that, Peter Ertz went on one of the most spectacular runs in kickboxing history. He remained undefeated until I believe it was around, uh, it may have been, 
I think in March of 1996 or May of 96, we eventually lost to Mike Bernardo. But during that yes. reign from 1993, the end of 93 through to 96, he defeated the likes of uh, Rob Van Esdonk a couple of times, Patrick Smith, yep. Sataki, uh, Frank yep. Lobman, uh, Kirkwood Walker, Atokawa, Ernesto, Jerome Labana, Sam Greco. He defeated Mike yep. Bernardo the first time. I mean, that was a crazy period for you and Peter. You were the most dangerous combination in the world of kickboxing back then. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and of course, when he lost to Mike Bernardo after that, I must tell you honestly, and Peter and even my son, they was not training so good. They was going out and, you know, they get famous. They go to discotheques, they go to bars, they drinking. So it was a little bit uh, their own uh, shame that they was not so good that time. But after that, he lose. He know that I talked with Peter and I said, listen, if you want to be a professional, you must be as the same as before in 1993. And he understand. And then he started training serious. And then he came back again. You see, then he beat also Andy Hook. He beat that after that. So he became better and better again. Let's talk about the 1994 K1 World Grand Prix, another fabulous tournament. Uh, Peter defeats... Rob Van Esdonk by knockout in the third round. Then he knocks out Patrick Smith in one round. Then he decisions Masaki Satake in the final. How much pressure was there in that final? Because once again, Satake was built up as the Japanese god. All the hopes of an entire nation, and I'm sure the hopes of K1, were on Satake to become the the great you know heavyweight hero of K1 for Japan, which never happened. How much pressure was there on you and Peter, especially in that 1994 final against Sataki? Yeah, there was a lot of pressure, of course, because we know also that it was a hometown fight. You know, the Japanese really want to do everything to get a Japanese champion. And of course, it was Mr. Ishii, Saido Kaikan, against Shakuriki. We get in the three years before there a very big name because we beat everybody. So everybody was trying to lose the our boys. And I know the fight before that was Branko with Satake. It was a draw, but they give the winning to Satake. You know, so I told Peter, you must really beat him. Otherwise, they let you lose that fight. So the pressure was quite high. But Peter is a farmer. He's very cool. And he said, oh, no problem, Sensei. I do. I will do. You know how he is. Uh, sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes I don't understand Peter because he had a slang. He's not from Amsterdam. He was from the south of Holland. And he came every day training to my gym, uh, about two hours traveling by car. But uh, he, he's cool, you know. He don't mind. I think other fighters was more nervous than Peter. Peter said, well, I beat him. I beat him. No problem. That's Peter Arts. <laughs> uh, that's why he became Mr. K1 and so beloved by fans. You know, you mentioned Branko Sikatik in that tournament, Tom, losing to Sataki very controversially. Do you yes. think if Branko hadn't started his K1 career as a 38-year-old, do you think if he'd started as a 28-year-old that Branko could have had a long run and become a multiple-time K1 world champion? Oh, that's for sure. That's that's was a pity that... You know his farewell fight, he was 43 years old and he beat Ernesto Hoost again on knockout. But I'm sure that if Branco was the age of Peter Ash, <laughs> there was a big competition about these two fighters for my gym. So a little bit good maybe for Peter that Branco was older. <laughs> I want to ask you this question, and I know you don't want to answer this, but I want you to please answer it for me. 
Branko in his prime versus Peter Ertz in his prime. Who would have won that fight? Yeah, you know, that's very difficult. And now, come on, Michael, let's save a little bit for next time, okay? We'll get into the full interview with Tom Herrick next week when Michael asks about his team's experiences when they first encountered Muay Thai. And Michael will also go on to talk about uh, the most famous K-1 fighters to train at Tom Herrick's dojo with the man himself, the godfather of Dutch kickboxing. Uh, and we'll talk about Jerome LeBanner and his experience at that gym and the bad boy of K-1 himself, Badr Hari. All right, now it's time for listener mailbag, and we have a question from Henderson, Nevada. Archie asks, who was the best small man in K-1 Grand Prix history? I think this is K-1 World Grand Prix. Yeah, so if Archie is asking specifically K-1 Grand Prix history, that would be the heavyweight. So Archie, it's a really good question, mate. Who is the best small man in K-1 heavyweight history? First, we have to define small man. So if we're going height-wise, I'd say we've got to go six feet or six feet one under. Weight-wise, we're probably saying 100 kilos or less. So this throws into the mix such names as Melvin Manoff, uh, Zabit Samadov, uh, let's see, Ruslan Karayev, Gokhan Saki, Stefan Leko. They're all considered small men in K1 World Grand Prix. But the answer, Archie, I believe is none of them. There is one name who stands out above all of them as the best small man in K1 history, and that's Andy Hug. Andy was only five foot eleven. He weighed only 97 kilos or 215 pounds. People forget that. People see Andy Hug as the K1 World Grand Prix winner in 1996. They see the axe kick. They see the spinning kicks. They see the leg kicks. They forget just how small Andy was. He was the smallest K1 Grand Prix winner, and he did it during an era of killers and giants. When Andy won the crown in 96, he beat Hoost, who outweighed him by, I reckon it was about 23 pounds, and Hoost was also about four inches taller than Andy. He beat Dwayne Vandermeer. Dwayne Vandermeer was six foot eleven a whole foot taller than Andy. Andy beat Mike Bernardo. Bernardo was five inches taller, about 30 pounds heavier than Andy Hoog. So although there were many great smaller men in the K1 Grand Prix, no doubt, Archie, Andy Hoog was the very best small man in K1 Grand Prix history. Great question. Michael, what about Cowcly? Um, that he, he was called the giant hunter or the monster hunter or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Cal Clyde, good pickup, Jonathan. I forgot about good Didn't old Cal Didn't he have Cal a fight Clyde. against uh, Hong Man Choi, right? No, it was the fight against Mighty Mo in the K1 World Grand Prix where he knocked out Mighty Mo with a spectacular jumping round kick. Uh, you remember that one, Jonathan. It was in, it was like something out of a, uh, not Jet Li, what's the other guy? Tony Jar film. It's a Tony Jar style technique done in real life by Cal Clyde, who was a Muay Thai fighter. And you're dead right, Jonathan, a very small man and a deserved mention amongst those other small men that I did mention earlier on. But uh, yeah, Cal Clyde, can't forget him. Great, you know, great reminiscing here. And uh, again, Archie, great question, mate. Really good. Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode of K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of the all-new Reborn K1 Worldwide. We hope you enjoyed the show. I sure did. And Jonathan, coming up next week, we will play the full interview 
with the great Tom Herring. And, uh, mate, there are some stories in there that fans don't want to miss. And, again, Tom Herring, a man who doesn't mince his words. Yep, that's a wrap for today's episode of K1 Battlecast. We hope you enjoyed our walk down memory lane with Peter Ertz, incredible back-to-back wins in the 94-95 World Grand Prix, as well as Michael's conversation with K1 legend Tom Herring. As always, please feel free to follow us on Facebook and X and send your burning K1 questions to our official K1 Battlecast email. We look forward to hearing from you. All right, everyone, have a great week, and we will see you next Friday. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, and in this case, the broken clock is me. Uh, Cow Clyde did fight Hong Man Choi, just for the record. <coughs> so uh, check it out on YouTube. All right, guys, see you next time. <laughs>